Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. Seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, um, Cass, I think that we both already can agree and know for sure that our listeners are in for an extra special treat today, which perhaps is um, timely given that you and I are recording this on Valentine's Day. (laughs) Um, But of course, you know, we have had curators, professors, authors, designers, and even conservators on the show so far to speak about their own work in or on fashion. But today we bring you fellow time traveler and one of our favorite contemporary artists, Fabiola Jean-Louis, whose work has been described as magical, moody, and mysterious. And she herself has remarked, quote, I have an obsession with exposing what lies beneath the surface. And one way she does this is by incorporating her own very exquisite reproductions of historic dress to interrogate the ways in which fashion and dress has been complicit within systems of power, which is, of course, exactly one of the main themes that we explore on dress. So needless to say, she is a woman, mother, and maker after our own heart. And we are so pleased that she joins us today to speak about her work and practice. Fabiola, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Dress. Fabiola, thank you so much for joining us to chat about your work. Um, It goes without saying that Cass and I are huge fans, and I'm very excited to invite our listeners to check out your work uh, because today's conversation, I think, is going to peel back the many, many, many layers of your work, Um, not only in the work that you create, but also like your practice and how you create it. There's a ton to unpack here. So, I'm hoping before we get to that, you could tell us a little bit about yourself. You were born in Haiti, but moved to New York as a very young child. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Well, first, thanks for having me. I love the work that you guys are doing, so it's an honor. As far as where I, about me, I was born in Haiti and in um, Port-au-Prince and moved to Harlem when I was around two or so and spent most of my time every summer going between New York and Haiti. So I was very much still connected to Haiti um, growing up. And then it stopped early in my teenage years or maybe before that. And I didn't go back to Haiti again for 19 years after. Oh, wow. Following, Yeah, so there's been a break in my connection to my Haitian culture as far as like having, you know, direct access to it. Um, like I did when I was growing up, but that's part of the journey I'm on right now is is reconnecting, centering myself on my Haitian identity and, and all that good stuff. 
Yeah. Well, and also too, I think I heard that, uh, I listened to you on another podcast and you were talking a little bit about like how much reading that you have been doing, especially into different religious traditions from that area and the symbolism and, and that it does appear in your work. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, I've been, I've definitely been reading. There's a lot to dive through um, with the research that I'm doing right now. And it's not something that I often talk about just because I'm, I'm more of the thinking that I really want to make sure that I have the information correct that I'm learning. So there's a lot of cross research that I'm doing before I will start spitting out that information. Um, nothing worse than getting something like that wrong, especially yeah. where it comes, you know, where, where my <laughs> culture is, is uh, considered. And I definitely don't want to have any scholars raise their hands and say, hey, what are you talking about? So, yeah, I can touch on some things, but there's other things that I, I really just keep to myself just just to keep it as my personal my personal evolution. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that coming up. But I'd love to talk about your formative years a little bit more. Um, this is a question we ask a lot of artists and designers on the show because it's, it's just so fascinating to see um, how people kind of develop their creativity and their relationship to art. So what role did imagination and creativity play in your household as you were growing up? A huge, huge role. Can you tell? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can. <laughs> uh, so it, it's very interesting because my I grew up in a household where my father was extremely talented with creativity. He never focused on it. Unfortunately, it's, it's just something within our culture and the Caribbean culture where, you know, art is something wonderful to do as a hobby, but it's not really seen as something um, that will help you um, support yourself and, you know, doesn't get enough respect as it deserves. So because of that, um, my father, he, he didn't do any of the work, the creative work outside of the household. But fortunately for me, that meant that the home was this hub of where he did all of those things, right? And so I, I saw that. Uh, he went from woodwork to making garments. I mean, he would make art clothes for us when we were growing up. He made my, my, my brother's graduation suit um, when, he, when he graduated from high school. Uh, the man is just really a Renaissance genius man. And he taught me the first most important lesson that I, I learned for my entire life. And I still, I use that lesson today. What is that lesson? There's no such thing as boredom. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 ran to him. I ran to him when I was eight years old, bored out of my mind and clearly bothering him. And he reached for the nearest thing uh, next to him and he found a little matchbox and it had some matches in it and he emptied out the matchbox and gave me the matchbox and he said, here, do something with this. I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? And he's like, that's the point, figure it out. So I left and he said, if you figure something out and you come back, then I'll do something with you. And I did, I came back and I had turned the little matchbox into a car and then he did spend time with me, but that, that stuck with me forever. And I have been making ever since. Yeah. And I think it's um, so interesting because I'm originally from the Midwest, but when I first moved to New York, and that was like almost 15 years ago now, but uh, I realized like you can't be bored in New York. Like obviously you were a child at the time and you were in your home, but uh, that kind of leads me into my next question. Even if you're in your, your New York and you're broke, just go for a walk. You're going to see some crazy wild stuff or have an interesting conversation with someone. So 
You know, I'm always very envious when I meet native New Yorkers and I wonder what it would be like growing up and and especially being a teenager when you have all of this access to museums and galleries and concerts in the park and, you know, this entire world of culture, like immediately at your fingertips in these most formative years. So I'm curious, do you feel like New York played a role in shaping you to become an artist? And, and if so, what did your creative life look like when you were a teenager? See, I love that question. Um, and I honestly didn't think too much about it up until I read that question because I've just I've just been so used to being here. But it absolutely shaped my creative life. I started hanging out in the village when I was 12. My father took me there for the first time at 11. And I was like, they, these are my people. <laughs> this is where I belong, you know? And, you know, it, it just, I just felt so comfortable with seeing all these different people and creatives on the streets selling art. And I think at that point I had decided I really just wanted to be an artist, whatever that meant. And it's not that I necessarily went to the museums a ton as a child. It was really more my street education was really big. And um, it caused me to want to go to art high school. So out of the three siblings, I was allowed, I was the only one allowed to not go to Catholic private school and um, was able to enroll at the um, fashion industries high school. Yay. Yeah. So, you know, my, my teenage years was definitely um, shaped and inspired by just, you know, the New York City experience. There was another part to your question that you, at the very end, I guess you kind of already answered it in, in terms of like, what were you engaging with culturally at that time? Actually, there was so much more that I engaged with than, than what I, I just said. I, I also became a club dancer at a young age and the rave scene, the club scene. I mean, I was fortunate that I experienced New York at the best, the best time during that period. And it was the last best time of New York also, you know, like the 90s where it was the absolute last amazing time there. And I, I was all in it. You know, I knew all these, all these people and it, it, it influenced my fashion and influenced my desire to want to do fashion. So it was deeply embedded in New York lifestyle. On a personal note, I almost wrote my master's thesis on the club kids. <gasps> yeah. And I even started, Michael Alleg and I started corresponding when he was still in prison. Um, and he's like, I'll totally help you. Just like, he's like, I'll introduce you to like, you know, whoever or whatever. But then he started giving out my mailing address to other oh. inmates in jail. And I started getting letters <laughs> Yeah, he's an interesting character. So I kind of pulled the plug on that. Yeah, I'm like, I was one degree away from the whole Michael Alley group. Mm -hmm. So I knew all of the the people on the perimeter of his circle and and spent a lot of time hanging out with them and dancing. So, you know, Limelight, all the clubs that Mm -hmm. you can think of that were big back then, that was a part of my life. And I did leave home early. I left at 16 to live in Chelsea with 11 roommates. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think when I, when I think about that, it really feels like I can compare it to what young people were, younger people were doing in the sixties, you know, the fifties, seventies, all of that in the nineties I was doing that. And um, it it wasn't until later on, a little bit later that I I was able to, one of my favorite artists became Basquiat. Mm -hmm. And 
I didn't even start connecting the things that we had in common until much later in my life. Um, one being Haitian, you know, the street kid aspect, the, the, the way that he hung out with people and the groups that he was a part of. And it, it really was just like, this is what I know I've been wanting to do for, the, for my entire life. So yeah, I got to do it. Ah. And something that I think is, is really interesting about you and that you, you know, you have these early introductions to art and fashion. Art school is actually not the next stop for you as it would have been for so many other visual artists. You were on the path to med school to become a doctor. So what prompted this shift from science and medicine to pursuing art? So I became a mother at a very young age. So by the age of 19, I was married and with child and, um, I, I was still doing art, but it, it became clear that I needed to do something else to support my family. And so there was a move to Miami where I pretty much just disconnected from everything New York, um, including my art also. So what that really reflects this, this science career that I was working towards was that major shift and break that I took from art. And this was not long ago, actually, is very recent. So I, 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 you know, three children later, actually, still living in Miami, I decided, you know, on public assistance and all of this stuff, I was like, man, I really have got to do something more. So I took a shot and listened to my parents who were telling me, you know, this, you've got to do something more serious with your life. And I did. I, I initially thought I was going to become a nurse. So I, I registered at the Miami Community College and there very early on found out that I had a talent for science. And then so the teachers pushed me to go into university and change from nursing to doctor. And, and then I did go to university instead and change my major so that I would go to, to medicine. And I was actually three months away from graduating pre-med to enter med school when I left for, for photography. And what prompted this move to photography? So I, um, I was engaged at the same time during that time and had a really awful breakup, also months away from the wedding. And so as it should be, it, it took a major life change that caused me to re you know, analyze my life again and, and really question the journey that I was on and if it was for me or if it was for other people. Mm-hmm. And the, the, you know, I was distraught and I just needed art as medicine again. And it was really just that therapeutic for me. And so that really caused me to just want to express myself in a way that I, I didn't want to use words to do. And I started experimenting with conceptual photography just as, you know, a hobby while I was doing this rigorous class schedule. And, um, I started doing it more than my day job. (laughs) That's when I realized there was a little bit more to that. Yeah. And we are so glad you did. Yeah, absolutely. I (laughs) think the whole world is at this point. The world is a better place because of this shift. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was, was, thank you. It was, it was definitely one of those moments in life where you you're at a pitchfork and I know it's so cliche to say the pitchfork, but it really felt like that. Mm -hmm. Just really needing to take a leap of faith and and being in a very scary place because I was a single mom again to three children and working part-time in med school. There was a lot of sacrifices that I was going to have to make to enter art again, Um, Mm -hmm. but it just felt right. 
Yeah. And, and you've remarked in the past that you see yourself as a storyteller. And I think that this is something that Cass and I can like totally identify with because, you know, it, it may seem counterintuitive to some people that, you know, dressed is, you know, we tell the stories of, you know, that are embedded in the history of clothing and dress via this audio format, right? You're not necessarily seeing what we're talking about. And you also use clothing and dress as a narrative device and, and you do so visually, but in actuality, your depiction of historic dress and your work kind of functions as this nexus point that allows you to talk about these much, much bigger issues. And we're going to get to that here shortly. But before we get to that, you started out doing photography and you were doing a lot of portraiture, if mm-hmm. I'm right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, self-portraits. So when and how did you first come to incorporate fashion and dress history in your work? I would say by my fourth photograph, I decided that I really wanted to start making the garments because I was really interested in diving deeper into um, fantasy and things like that. Afrofuturism, really. But then also working from a place of limitation and not having financial stability. So I wasn't I wasn't able to afford anything to make, you know, to buy or rent my costume. So it really was um, an, a necessity for me to have to make something. And so my first garment that I make for Queen of Butterflies, which is the name of the piece, I used duct tape and wooden fans and all these different things that were very inexpensive to make an armor-like garment. And that was the first time that I, I realized that using, making and using these garments in the way that I was doing was really going to help me further push the stories that I wanted to tell. And, and that was the goal at the end. It was always to, to do whatever was going to help push the story further um, mm-hmm. by letting the garment, you know, tell part of the story. And now that we've learned a little bit more about your childhood and growing up, like how you incorporated these different elements into your work really is starting to make sense. And especially your relationship to clothing and the clothed body. I mean, it's pretty fascinating. And you, of course, have several bodies of work. But first, I'm hoping we can speak about your rewriting history series. For any of our listeners who are not able to immediately get their hands on a digital device to see images of your work, although I think they'll be googling you as we go once you start to describe your pieces would you describe one of the pieces from the series for us and and maybe even the queen of butterflies like more in detail sure so i'll start with the queen of butterflies really quick it's a black woman that is wearing uh, what looks like almost an armor but it's there's hints of baroque in there Um, there's butterflies coming from behind her from the darkness Um, And there's a very detailed kind of door behind her. And so there's a lot of gold in that piece. There's a lot of gold and and black tribal design in there mixed with different periods. So that's the very beginning of me trying to pull from different periods into one um, to tell a story. Uh, It's also, you know, me very clearly saying that I'm an Afrofuturistic artist who is interested in telling a story. For rewriting history, I would describe the first image that I opened the series with, which was a paper gown with text on the bodice. And 
in the very chest part of the dress where there's a, the chest cavity, there's an opening that shows the background of a sky, a very beautiful blue sky with clouds and a, a, a little rose bush and a black body hanging from the chest, from the, the, the bush. So very, very intense. Um, and, uh, but it was very important for me to open up with something that told my viewers what I was going to be talking about. Um, mm -hmm. It needed to be very clear that I was not only going to be using fashion as a way to tell the story, but that it would be telling a story. It would be kind of like a vehicle to carry, you know, an ugly truth. Mm -hmm. It also was the beginning of me trying to figure out how I was going to be working with this material paper um, because text doesn't really show up too much more after that. It shows up maybe one more time in a scroll in another piece, but I don't, I don't use text very much in the rest of the series. Well, I mean, this series packs a punch, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which obviously is intentional. Um, I, you don't need words, you know, right. like, like once you see, once <laughs> listeners, once you see her work, you will totally understand exactly what I'm talking about. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to also be like, wait, that clothing is made out of paper. I mean, it's incredible. So I'm I'm guessing that like this this materiality of paper kind of goes back again, like Cass said, to your childhood of just like finding what's around you and making it work. But also too, like your knowledge of of the silhouettes and uh, the sh shaping of historic garments. Like I'm curious, like how did you go from just a humble piece of paper to like creating these elaborate 18th century, 16th century, or 17th century, 18th century, 19th century gowns. I mean, like what, what was that process of like just going from paper to, it's stunning, Fabiola. Like they, they, <laughs> they look real. There are no words. Really. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, actually, it's really interesting because the, the thing that told me it had to be paper, first of all, was the title. I, the title came to me first before whatever it was that I was going to create. So I woke up one morning and just thinking about the, the work that I wanted to do and, and, and the words rewriting history just came out of my mouth. And, and I was like, before that, though, I was doing research on um, just period gowns, looking at how much it would cost to rent and or make. And there was just like, there's no way. Um, and then rewriting history came up and I said, wow, wouldn't it be dope to to make these gowns out of paper to coincide with the title, Rewriting History. And I honestly, I had to just dive in to making it. I had never, aside from working with stationery in my past, I had never constructed anything that large out of paper. And I looked on the internet, really just checking to see, had this been done before? Because this is something that's really important in my process is really just gauging to see what's out there because what I really don't want to do is, is copycat. Oh, I, it's just a big deal for me. And I wasn't able to find anything at the time. Now I'm fami more familiar with, with other artists like Isabel de Bosquage. I think that's how you pronounce her name. That's mm -hmm. doing, that's been doing work like that, but I only came across like paper cutters and things. So I thought, okay, I can, I can do this and now I have to figure out how to make this paper sculpture, which is what it is, 
fit the body and be worn. So I think also what I was pulling from at that time was I, I also have, because of my science mind, and this is really where my science comes into play in my work, I, I have more of an architectural mind and I like to think of things in 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I never sketched anything, you know, there, it was just working from what I had in my mind to create and diving in, I learned, I taught myself and, you know, that's, that's how I got to where I am today. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I just want to say too, there are other artists who work in this medium, but you bring something so original and so, I mean, entirely different really, um, because you get this surface reaction by just looking at your at your pieces, and then once you start to really look closer, I mean, this whole other other world and message unfolds. And and it's not just about you creating these pieces, but you're also putting it within this staged photograph, um, which we'll talk about, I think, in a little bit coming on. I mean, we have so many questions for you on the technical aspects of crafting these pieces. They are, as April said, just incredible replications of historic dress. And if you look at them, you're not immediately going, those are paper. So before we delve into kind of the the subject of race and racial injustice, which of course are important central themes of your work in this series, I hope you'll permit me to ask a couple more questions about research and fabrication of the garments featured because our minds are just blown a little bit. How do you go about researching the construction of these garments? And do you examine, for instance, extant examples or patterns or how, yeah, how do you make this happen? Oh yeah. Yes. So I have a small library between my two studios and those books really consist of pattern making. So I have several books on pattern making and design and, you know, construction ranging from, you know, 16th century, 19th to 19th century. Um, I think I might even have something as early as uh, 15th century in there. So there's a lot of, of that in my, in my collection when I'm doing research. There's also um, researching paintings. You know, it's interesting in the paintings that you don't, you never, you almost never see the back of the dress in the painting. It's always just the front. And so before I was able to even get the books, the paintings really were the first place that I went to to research and, and try to zoom in on the details and figure out what the back was going to look like. So there's there's that. And then I really just, I also look at museum catalogs. Those are Those have become my favorite just because they have the real life in their catalog. And a lot of times you can see a front and a back or at least three quarter view of the dress. Sometimes none of those things help me, honestly, because at the end of the day, I have to try and figure out how to make this paper sculpture wearable for someone for a few hours. And believe it or not, it, it can be uncomfortable because paper, you know, it's not breathable. Um, you're, you're sweating. It's hot. It's it's so I have to find a way to make it comfortable for my wearer, you know, and 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 function and, and not destroy it so that it can last um, for the exhibition when it's time. Mm-hmm. And just curious, how long does it take you to research and then create one of these ensembles? Is uh, what's your process like? Is it is it a day? Is it? Um, I mean, I know that's not it, but how long <laughs> does that how long does that process take you? <laughs> it's ongoing, honestly. It, it it starts with it starts, of course, with research, but the research never stops. So throughout the making process, I'm referencing, I'm looking. Um, I'll maybe get to a place where I have more questions in the making process and I have to stop and, and do a little bit more research. So it's always touch and go. 
but it's never something that um, that ends. And then also, of course, I have to make the decision on, you know, how accurate do I want to be with this gown? There's times that I don't want to be accurate. Um, some people don't realize that it's purposeful that I've actually made that decision. They'd be like, uh, what period actually is this? Because it's <laughs> like a combination. I'm like, because it is. Um, so there's a lot of decisions that I have to make in the process. And so it can take months. It, I think the longest time it took me to make one dress was five months. Wow. Yeah. And that, and that was in one of the pieces um, that I think that, you know, we've talked about maybe via email, uh, the, uh, they'll say we enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, that dress was the most detailed dress that I had ever made. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, all of this like incredible painstaking work that goes into just creating the garments in and of themselves serves this ultimate act of photographing usually women, but people of color wearing them. And so you were disrupting these, and I'm and I put this in quotes, you know, traditional narratives of art history, you know, because anybody who's ever wandered into the European portraiture section of a major museum very well knows that the overwhelming preponderance of faces peering out at you from these portraits, they're all white or or almost entirely white. So when I say that you're, you know, disrupting these kind of Eurocentric narratives of art history, I just want to point out that it's, you know, that it's not necessarily because women of color weren't wearing these silhouettes or these textiles at the time, because we know for certain, because we have written accounts that they were, um, and and that, you know, we have other portraiture documenting the fact that they had access to luxury goods. But what I find interesting about your work is that when you choose to replicate something, your work is often pointing to a very specific painting, or it's pointing to a very specific person represented in this bigger, wider canon of art history. So I'm hoping you can talk about how you use Eurocentric art and fashion history to investigate Blackness. Well, I use it, I use it really as a way to just oppose um, injustices. Mm -hmm. Because really what I'm doing is using Eurocentric fashion and some history to spotlight the contrast of how black bodies have been treated throughout history. Um, and that's really, that's, that's really the, the main need for that. Um, oftentimes people ask me, why did you choose to use this, you know, um, European fashion and things like that to tell the black story or narrative? It, it's because they're so connected there's no way for me, there was no way of waving the flag and saying, hey, there's something wrong here without pointing to the cause, mm-hmm. right? There's just something so obvious about the difference when you see, when you know the truth about white women in freedom sitting down wearing eight layers of clothing for a portrait next to a black woman who you rarely see in that, in that situation. Um, and also, this is a conversation about freedom, right? What does it mean to be free? Also sitting down for a portrait in in layers of clothing. And next to her and within that frame is, is a story of trauma. You can't help as a viewer but to connect that trauma to maybe that that white woman that we we knew would have worn that dress or 
European history or European people. It's not to point a finger necessarily. It's not to make anyone feel bad, but it's to really be truthful about, about those things. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And through, I mean, through your work, you're really asking the viewers to engage with the past and to critique a troubled, sometimes often violent past by way of the present. And this is the case in two of your works. They'll Say We Enjoyed It, which you you mentioned, and Madame Beauvoir's painting. This is going to be a bit of a prolonged question, but first, would you describe these two pieces to our listeners? Madame Beauvoir's painting is of a portrait with a Black woman showing us most of her back. It's almost three-quarter view. And she's looking at a painting of a painting that I did of a, a man called Gordon. He's known as the of slave Gordon who ran away for his freedom. But there's a latticework of whip marks on his back in the painting. And the subject, her back is facing the viewer because on the back of her paper dress is also a similar latticework of whip marks on the dress. And the next piece, uh, they'll say we enjoyed it, is of this beautiful woman with her dog, just posing in a regal position. And it appears to look like what, what, what's happening behind her is like this, this outside scene of these two white men um, with white wigs um, raping what looks like a black ape, but that's really supposed to be a black woman. And, and so those are pieces of old paintings that I had taken and recreated to infuse with that. Yeah. And, and I think with like, as soon as you just get over the glamour of the clothing that you've created and you delve into these other layers, you know, you're like really taken back. And then you're just like, oh, <laughs> like, um, and, and you have actually described your work as visual activism. And I love this description so much. Um, and, and, you know, when you use this term activism, it almost feels like in that there's this implied optimism for the future. Um, you know, so you're layering all these references to the past and asking the person in the present to critique the past, but you're also kind of like looking forward to the future. And a lot of these, all of these are like converging in the same image that you're making. And you have referenced your interest in Afrofuturism um, a few different times now. So I'm curious about like what role that plays into your work and the way that you use technology. And also too, like some of our listeners might not be familiar with the Afrofuturism movement. So would you tell us a little bit about that? So the movement, what I would say to the viewers as far as the movement is, it's a lot. And I would definitely (laughs) ask Bethany to research on what that is. But Afrofuturism for me, and I say for me because it even though there's a general definition for it, it needs something different for everyone. For me, it is Black excellence. It is looking at how Black people have influenced culture, society throughout time. It is omnipresent. So Black presence and influence is also omnipresent. It's everywhere. And we're not, we're not just beings that came out of nowhere and are just here for the now. We we're always here. We are all always shaping society and science and culture and dress and all of those things. And so for me as an Afrofuturistic artist, my goal is always to figure out 
how do I show Black excellence in my work? How do I show us in the best light that I possibly can, even when talking about traumatic experiences um, in, in history? So that's always important for me. And as far as science and technology, I mean, I'm a techie. I call myself that <laughs> all the time. And it's not, it's really not an accident that I use a camera to do what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's I could have picked up a paintbrush and paint and, and portrayed these stories in that way, but it was important for me to use technology to do it and in a, in, in a different way. And then also to, to, use the camera, but then also go back to the masters to, to render my images in a way that looks like something from the past, right? So it was important for me to bring all of these different time periods together in, in what I was doing as a Black artist. Mm -hmm. Do you ever do any like digital intervention at all? Like once the photographs are, are taken? Sure. Yes. So I always say that I definitely edit my work but there's nothing that I can edit if my lighting is not right first. So first and foremost is ensuring that my lighting is correct. So I do look at Rembrandt, you know, I do look at paint math, the masters to see how they lit their subjects. And, and so once I have that right in camera, then I, I'll, I'll edit the work. There is some painting that I do to, to, to smooth out things sometimes um, because I really do want it to look like a painting, but past just some editing in that way to smooth out some lines and to make sure that the, the color tones are, are what would have been in an old painting. That's pretty much it. And then the rest of it, the rest of the aesthetic, really, I, I, I give credit to my, my printer. My printer is a master at what he does and he knows exactly how to translate what I've sent him to, to a final print that looks, that looks stunning. Yeah. And they are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely stunning. And I, I, the fact that the images are printed as photographic prints actually brings us full circle back to your use of paper. Is that an intentional um, part of your work? Yes. And I thought it was pretty clever of you to have figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes there's some things I do on purpose that are obvious. And then there's other things that I do that are just that are, are on purpose, but just for me. And so, you know, I, I get a good little laugh in the back backdrop when nobody else notices. But then you really just shouted me out. I was like, oh, you saw that. <laughs> yes. Um, Paper, having it printed um, really just was full circle for me as far as, you know, you're looking at this piece when it's all f said and done and the gown is made out of paper and then it's printed on paper. It just, it really takes it to the place that I want to. And I don't think I mentioned this, but the material is really important, not just because of a title that I woke up in my head with. The material represents something unlike anything in our world, right? There's no other thing that, that changes and, sh and, and shifts like paper does. You know, in one instance, it's, it is a, a paper plate. Uh, in another instance, it's currency to buy, you know, human bodies. I don't know that there's another material that will, that will have such meaning like, like this does in our, in our world. And, and then you think about the constitution and, words written on paper that seemed like they were etched in stone almost because it, these laws have really impacted everyone's lives forever. So 
it's really not a meaningless material. It's a very, very important um, thing to use in this work to tell the story of, of trauma, injustice, and, and also to celebrate Black bodies. Yeah. And, and, you know, your reference to like being a plate and also currency, it's like it, it has the capability of being the most humble thing and like the most powerful thing and everything in between. And it's that mutability that I think is really, really interesting. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the power that people imbue in things mm-hmm. and in objects, it's pretty yeah. incredible. It is. Yeah, it really is. So then it becomes, you know, it becomes for me obvious why I needed to make it out of paper. And, and since then, my obsession with the material has only grown because of that. I don't know any other material that does that today. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Rewriting history is only one series of your work. Um, Would you also tell us a little bit about your current series, Atonement, and the role that fashion and dress plays in that body of work as well? Atonement is my, yes, it's my new baby. I'm really (laughs) excited about Atonement. Um, A little bit about this work is that it is very rich and heavy in Catholicism and voodoo and spirituality, because what I'm really looking to do with this work is to look at where Catholicism overlaps with voodoo and overlaps with Haitian culture, specifically because I'm Haitian. And and Haiti is just one of those special places where Catholicism runs deep, but so does voodoo. And there's, there's a lot of compromising and blending of those two things in my culture. Also, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on this work because again, I, I'm choosing something in history that I think is very important in shaping the world and, and society. And, and, and by that, I mean the Bible. 
So in rewriting history, I'm talking about currency and I'm talking about the constitution. In atonement, now I've chosen something else made out of paper, like the Bible, to dive deeper into, into spirituality and, and all those things. So fashion is a very important role in that um, because I don't, know, I don't know about other people, but I, I have never taken lightly clothing that the Pope wears or <laughs> nuns or seriously, like they have this, they have this really intense, amazing fashion that has a purpose. And this purpose is to almost impose their authority in the area of spirituality, right? And their knowledge of God. And so for me, it's really important to look at what does fashion do in this sense, right? Mm-hmm. How can fashion be used to, to really tell people that this is who you are, this is the position that you play in society and that you need to be respected in that way for it. Um, and so I opened the piece, uh, the first image with, you know, what looks like a papal hat, but it's covering the eyes and it's, it's totally redone in a different way. Um, it's just to really speak on the fact that I'll be doing riffs off of, off of that, off of their clothing. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I believe you posted a video of you working on this piece. Is this where you were adding gold foil to the, the portrait after? So no, I was actually editing in oh, okay. digitally editing that piece, but the the garment itself does have did have gold foil on it. Um, I actually don't work with foil. Let me correct that. I work with pure gold leaf with everything that I do. So that headpiece itself was all twenty four karat gold paper as well. So there will be a lot of paper garments, and I did go between wanting to maybe rent or work with designers on this, collaborating with designers on this, or making these garments myself. And I just, it, it just became just as important for me to make these myself again. So I, I will be making everything out of paper again. Yay. We can't wait. <laughs> and again, just an incredible amount of work and skill and time that goes into each and every single piece. And I mean, you have this final piece that is just absolutely stunning. Um, our listeners, if they weren't familiar with your work uh, before they are now, um, because, uh, and we'll be following you well into the future. And April and I, of course, huge fans, as you now know, uh, both follow you on Instagram. So I know you've also been painting recently and making some really lovely abstract sculpture. Would you tell us a bit about this and what direction you see your work taking in the future? Sure. So um, the paintings are really more for me. I'm in the process right now of just exploring myself as a creative and seeing how far I can stretch my tentacles into, you know, making things out of paper. I really want to push the material as much as possible. So the paintings are really just a part of my exploration and also my research. There's so much experimentation in my work that everything that I know how to do today comes from that. Um, And so oftentimes my studio is going to have painting, sculpture, whatever going on, because within that space is the the answer to the next project that I'm working on. With the sculptures, I'm working more now with uh, paper clay. So again, pushing the material, seeing how I can sculpt. I am making mosaics out of paper clay. I'm very, very obsessed in, 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 in love with mosaics and stained glass right now. I mean, I have been for a while, but I never did think about 
how I could translate paper into that. So that's what I'm working on right now. And of course, you have had so many museum exhibitions, some really lovely (laughs) fellowships um, in the last few years. So if people want to learn more about your work or where can they find your physical work, first of all, and where can they find you also on social media? So um, right now I don't have an exhibition open. I've been, I've made the decision to wait to do anything until um, the fall when hopefully it will be safer to, to open, but there will be two dresses that uh, will be worn at the Isabella Gardner museum this fall. So, which is in, in Boston. Um, so anyone who wants to see those up front and personal, um, I will be posting on Instagram at Fabiola Jean-Louis, more information about that event. So these dresses really are going to be the beginning of the work that I was talking to you about with uh, mosaics. These will be paper dresses to look like mosaic gowns. And then there's another another museum that my work will be showing in, in, in the fall, but this is a really, really big deal and I can't make an announcement just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I will be also announcing that um, on social media soon. There's a few things in the works that I'm working on as far as where people can see my work, but nothing will be happening until the fall mm-hmm. for now. Otherwise, they can go on my website, FabiolaJeanLouis.com, and again, Instagram, FabiolaJeanLouis. And you have a gallery, am I correct? Yes, I am represented by the Allen Avery Art Company in Atlanta. They always have my work hung on their walls in Atlanta. Um, and so if anybody's out there and wants to see some of the prints in person, they're more than welcome to, to go there and see the work. Hopefully I will be able to open up my studio in the Bronx again and start having visitors come. I'll be your first volunteer. Yes. (laughs) I I am looking forward to that. Um, All of my work right now is happening in my home studio. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Fabiola, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this today. This was super, super fun. You know, we've been talking about this for a few months and it finally came to fruition. So we really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. And I really can't wait, can't wait to see some more of your posts on Instagram. Y'all are doing like really dope stuff. And I have to say really quick, you're also helping inspire some of my creations because you're sharing images of things that I would, I would research. So I don't, it just saves some of the research for me. I can just go to the page and be like, what did I post? (laughs) So why, you. why are you trying to make us cry over here? I know. <laughs> yeah, I'll thank do it you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Fabiola, our immense thank yous for joining us uh, today and sharing your love and passion for what you do. April, I think we both agree that we find her and her work incredibly compelling. So will our listeners. I don't know if you remember the first time you saw one of her pieces, but I was first introduced to it through the Fashion and Race Database, which we've, of course, talked about on the show. Um, They used kind of a close-up on one of her works for kind of an entry into their website. And I mean, it's just breathtaking. It stops you in your tracks. Definitely get out there and check it out, dress listeners. Yeah. And, 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 you know, perhaps her work is even more amazing 
So, you know, so like when you go to her Instagram and her website and you're seeing what she's up to, keep in mind that she has really been only working as an artist at this kind of scale for the last six or seven years. And some of our regular listeners might remember me mentioning a time or two on the show in the past that before I became a fashion historian, I was actually a contemporary art gallerist for almost a decade. So, you know, it goes without saying that I spent a ton of time around artists and, and I can tell you for a fact that for many artists, it takes them years or even decades to kind of cultivate this ability to tell stories at this level that Fabiola has in her work. But for her, it just seems to come like so effortlessly. You know, it's it's her creativity and intellect can't but just like flow out of her and whatever she turns her hand to next. And we cannot wait to see what she is up to next. We will be waiting for bated breath as she continues to share with us all her wonderful storytelling and ventures in paper and fashion. And doubtless to say it'll also be just as poignant and magical, all of her future work. So excited to see um, where she continues to grow. And that does it for us, the Sweet Dress listeners. Might you consider the histories hidden in your closet next time you get dressed? Don't forget to tune in Thursday for more Dressed. We love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. Or of course, you can also DM us on Instagram, which is where we will post lovely images to accompany this week's episode on Fabiola. And also thank you as always to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.